I'm turning now to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and I read from verses 16 and 17. John chapter 1, verse 16, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And our subject is the truths that lead to God. The words of Christ, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Law and grace, two words that I'd like to focus on. They are two gigantic pillars of knowledge, law and grace. The state of humanity is described here, and humanity needs law. But humanity, for reconciliation with God, to know the personal and the living God, needs grace. Law and grace. When I was younger, I remember hearing many people saying, that the God of the Old Testament is quite different from the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is fierce, they would say. And the God of the New Testament is presented as a God of love. It was only after some years that I discovered what an error that is and what a Sad mistake, that is, that the Old Testament is one kind of God and the New Testament is another kind of God. Right through the Bible, you have these two factors, pillars of knowledge, law and grace. You have them dominating the Old Testament and you have them dominating the New Testament. Testament. They're right through the Bible. They belong together. They're quite different, but both are vital. So why is it that here we read, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ? If grace is in the Old Testament, and I'll explain it, just like law, how is it Grace was not given until Christ. Surely there is a difference. No, there isn't. The meaning is simple. Both are in the Old Testament. There was law. And the law warned people of their need for righteousness and holiness before God. The law effectively said that there's more to it than this. God is unapproachable by you, unforgiven, unwashed in the sight of God. The law is reality. It draws us up short. If you like, it pulls us down and tells us that our state is hopeless. We cannot reach the holiness and the perfection of God. We're under his judgment. We're fallen men and women. Tainted with sin, 
through and through, capable of good things, but spoiled and tainted and corrupted in our hearts by sin. But grace is also in the Old Testament. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. Forgiveness by trusting in God's kindness and love. You know, when Moses was inspired and moved and taught to construct the movable place of worship for the Old Testament people in ancient times, the tabernacle, it was to be filled with illustrations, pictures, symbols of God's mercy and grace that he would freely forgive. When that tabernacle became a permanent fixture in one place and the first temple was built, and in due time, a second temple, this temple was full of symbols. The carvings in cedar wood all around the walls, covered with layers of what we would call today gold leaf. But the reliefs, the sculptures, as it were, chiseled out of all that cedar, and then resplendent with gold leaf over it, were all the symbols of mercy and forgiveness and peace with God and union with him, his forgiving love, his readiness to embrace and bring people into his family. When Solomon dedicated his temple, he was inspired to offer a great prayer. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8, and it's very long. And it covers every conceivable sin almost. And it says, if anybody does this, or if anybody does that, or if the people as a whole sin against the God, God and they reject him and neglect him, and he is compelled eventually to withdraw his blessing from them and even to judge them and take away his protective hand of defense so that they're invaded by enemies and taken captive and transported into a far country. If such things should happen in every conceivable eventuality, Solomon prays, if they just so much as look to this house and remember the symbols of mercy and free forgiveness and loving kindness of God and repent of their sins, he will forgive and bless and restore and save. That's grace, free forgiveness, law tells us the standards of God, cuts us down to size, warns us. Grace freely forgives us because we cannot earn or deserve or make amends or make up for our long record of sin. Law and grace, they always went together in the Old Testament and so they do in the New Testament. So in what sense? Does grace and truth come by Jesus Christ? Well, in this sense, it's easy, friends. Grace was poured out free forgiveness, free salvation, free kindness through the Old Testament. On what basis was it given? 
It was given on the basis that one day God would take away sin. In the future, when Messiah came, God would actually deal with the debt and the burden of sin. You could be forgiven in the time of Moses, in the time of Solomon, freely by God, and you trusted that God would deal with the burden one day, and in the meantime, on account of that, he would forgive you freely. When Christ came, the debt was paid, the transaction was done, the guilt was purged, the punishment was meted out upon him, he paid for it all. In that sense, grace came by Jesus Christ. It came in its application right from the beginning, but it was purchased and paid for and procured by the great work of Christ, the Son of God who became man also, the God-man, when he suffered and died on Calvary, and God the Father put on him all the guilt of all the sins that are ever to be committed by those who would be forgiven in the history of the world. He paid. That's the text. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You know, to not know about grace and about law is to know nothing about life. You can't understand life. You can, all your learning, all the information you have in your head and you acquire down the years is all about the here and now. Material things, material science, the present. You can't know the whole picture. Where do we stand in relation with God? What does God require of us? What will God do to us? Are we under his judgment? Can we find him? Can we be saved by him? You can't know the full purpose of life and the full picture without knowing about law and grace. The law of God, what is it and why did he give it? Well, you know, I'm sure, the law of God is the Ten Commandments, published in the time of Moses, written by God's finger in a supernatural way on tablets of stone. The law is the Ten Commandments, actually more than the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are very full. It is amazing that all the code of righteousness, the entire code of holiness and righteousness is compressed by God into ten commandments. Divine genius. The ten commandments is a summary. Moses, after giving the ten commandments, does a great deal of teaching, teaching the details, what they mean. So, for example, thou shalt not kill. The commandment against murder. Maybe you don't know this. It includes not only murder of the body, taking of a life, 
Moses explains it includes murder of somebody's happiness, murder of somebody's liberty, taking someone, kidnapping, taking them into slavery. People today are debating, is the Bible for or against slavery? They're so ignorant of the Bible, the people who debate this, they don't understand. The Bible tells us that the murder sin includes even captivity and slavery against a person's will. The taking of the happiness of a parent or a wife or a husband or a child the taking of somebody's self-respect. All these things are in the same family of which the murder of the taking of a life is the chief sin in the family. Now all that is explained in the chapters of Moses in the first five books of the Bible. That is the law. Why did God give the law? Well, it's easy to Understand, first, because it teaches about God himself. When you see the law, you see the character of God. God keeps his own laws. His laws are him. The laws are a picture of God's holy, righteous character and being. So the commandments tell us about God. But the commandments are also given as a tremendous act of kindness to the human race. God is kind in a way, even to masses of people who will never believe in him, even to people who will reject him, even to people who will slander him and sneer at him and dispose of him, even for people who will rebel against him. He shows a great measure of kindness in that he gives the law, the Ten Commandments. Don't you see that without the law of God, published in the Bible, but also written in our hearts, so much of it is deeply etched in the heart as instincts into our conscience. The law of God makes this world bearable it makes it possible to live here. It makes it a better place than it otherwise would be because there is a code for life and there are standards and we know if we break them, it's bad enough because of human sin with all the wretchedness and the misery and the cruelty and the hatred and the bloodshed and the cheating and the extortion and the fraud and the disloyalty, it's a bad enough place. Think what it would be if God had not in his great kindness given his law so that some of it still operates in our society. Governments these days, this is how we know it's the last days, are desperately trying to get rid of even that semblance of law. When they've got rid of all of it, just as they're now legislating against so much of it and making things concerning which the law says no, making them legal, making illegal any opposition 
to total sexual liberty and so on. What a place this world will be in 10 years' time. The more governments minimize the law of God. The law, but I'm straying from the point. It shows us God's character. It restrains sin in this present world, though you can't restrain it very much because of the sinfulness of the human race and the rebellion. Nevertheless, God is kind even to the unbelieving by leaving law in the heart, in the conscience, and in society. And then the third reason for the law, which is the very best reason, it is, as the Apostle Paul says, our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. You've all left school, or the vast majority have left school. But you're still in school, in God's school, because God has given us a schoolmaster. It's his law, it's the commandments, it's our conscience and our awareness of right from wrong. And these things are designed by God to convict us, to enable us to see our sin. Take the Apostle Paul. He tells us this in his letter to the Romans. There he was, a self-righteous Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. I think he was very well known among the Jewish hierarchy. He was a brilliant man. He was a great intellectual. And he had this ambition to soar, to climb, to do well, to be significant. And he was a Pharisee. He thought that by his own works of righteousness, he could achieve acceptance with God and go to heaven and be blessed and God would be pleased with him by his meticulous observance of the Jewish ritual for the day. All that ritual in ancient times was not given as a way of salvation. It was given to illustrate God's mercy and forgiveness. But instead of understanding the illustration, what people tended to do was to say, if I do these things, if I do all the hand washings, and if I make the sacrifices, if I do all the right things in the right place at the right time, God will be pleased with me and I will earn his acceptance. And that's what Saul of Tarsus thought. He tells us what made the difference. I had not known sin, he said. It did not dawn on me what sin was, and that I, of all people who thought so highly of myself, was a sinner and lost in the sight of God. I was his enemy. I was against him and I didn't know him. I didn't realize that. This was the point at which he was convicted. I had not known sin, but for this, he says, the law said, thou shalt not covet. And one day, 
when I saw those words, I saw I coveted. What did he covet? A splendid house? A big income? I don't know about that. But I know he coveted a place. A big place in Jewish society, in the Jewish church. He coveted authority and influence and esteem. Thou shalt not covet. He said, when I really saw those words for the first time, this is his reaction, I died. Whatever does he mean? I died. What he means is his estimation of himself collapsed. I wasn't a fine, upright person. I wasn't the great individual I thought I was. I wasn't heaven-bound. I died. I became a terrified being, cringing from God. The law was his schoolmaster. It said to him, you did wrong. You've sinned. You will die. And it brought him to the point where he cried out for mercy from God and for forgiveness and for a new start and a new life. So if the first task of the law is to show us God and his holy nature and character, and the second task of the law is to be a restraint upon an evil world, the third but the greatest task of the law is to bring us down to realism, to pull us down. I am a sinner who needs a savior. I cannot keep all these laws. I have failed in so many ways. I deserve nothing but permanent alienation from God and punishment. So Paul is right. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That's the law. Well, what's grace? Which is always alongside the law. But we have to have the law first. You can't approach God and find his grace and his free salvation and his mercy without the law doing its work. You need forgiveness and new life reconciliation with God and salvation. And here it is. How do you get it? By grace. It is unearned. It is undeserved. It is because Christ came in his great mercy and pity and loving kindness. He saw the nations lie all perishing in sin, and pitied the lost state this ruined world was in. The lines of Isaac Watts, so he came to be a savior for millions of people and to suffer and to die to bear away their punishment on their behalf because God cannot forgive you if your sin is not punished. And Christ in amazing mercy said, I will pay.
I will suffer in their place. And because he did so, he has purchased the right to forgive us freely. And we come and we repent and we fall at his feet and we ask for new life and to be his child and we give our lives to him and we believe only in that that our sin is paid for by the death of Christ on Calvary. And if we come with sincerity, he will work a work in our hearts. I was saying to somebody this morning, you know how you're saved? How do you know? If I come to Christ and he works in me and forgives me my sin and makes me his child and gives me new life, and sets me on the road to heaven. How do I know? Is there a bolt of lightning from heaven? Lands at my feet? Does something dramatic happen? Some people say, oh, oh, well, you're speaking a language you never learned. You're speaking tongues. And you'll feel a tingling down your spine. And wonderful things will happen. And you'll be healed of all your sicknesses. Now, friends, that's not the unmistakable mark by which you know that you're saved. It's within you. You find he's changed you. You say, has he heard my prayer? Has he saved me? Has he made me his own? Oh, but if I look within, he's changed me. I now hate the sins I used to love. And if I commit them, I feel terrible. And I go on my knees and ask his forgiveness. I look within. I find I've got a new way of thinking, a new outlook. I want the Lord. I want heaven. I find I can understand much more of his word than I ever understood before. I can see the gospel and the plan of salvation so clearly. I understand these things. I can see the world in a new light. I used to be so optimistic and committed to this world, you'll say. I used to love it and trust it and believe all happiness was here. Now I've seen through it. I can see the sham. I can see how much I needed a savior. You look within. And you see tremendous evidence that God has given you a new life, a new heart, a new mind. You're spiritually alive and you can pray and you have answers to your prayers. That's the sign, not a bolt of lightning, not hearing voices when there's nobody there, not things like that, but solid evidence within you. You've met with grace. Time is out. I wanted to say a few things about grace, dear friends. The law warns. Grace gives free forgiveness and new life. And Christ has purchased grace. The law cuts us off from God like it did Saul of Tarsus before he became known as Paul. 
the apostle. It cuts us off from God. It's an old illustration. God is like an island. You're lost at sea. You've got to swim to that island. You've got to reach it or you die. You perish with the sharks. And you strike out. You're a strong swimmer. You strike out as fast and hard as you can. But you can't because there are currents and they seem to be pushing you away from the island. They're pushing you off. You're going to perish. That's the law. You try to reach God without trusting in Christ, without free forgiveness, without him changing you and hearing your prayer, without giving yourself to him. It's got to be free salvation. It's got to be by grace, purchased for you by Christ. You try to reach God without grace. The law is against you. You can't come to this island. You're a sinner. You're unforgiven. You're a rebel. You're lost. I'm preaching this word tonight. This gospel of salvation, this message of life and hope is like a lifeboat. It comes out and it plucks you out of the water and it brings you freely to the island of life and hope. The law pushes you away from God. You can't come. He's holy. You can't go near him in your present condition. And grace brings you home. The law is God pushing you down. It's necessary. And grace is God lifting you up. My time is out. Dear friends, when you die, you better be under grace, not under law. If you're under law and judgment, you'll be lost. Because when you die, the law of God will take the form of a great charge sheet against you. Every offense against God you've ever committed. And you go into judgment. You need to be under grace. In the book of life of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, a person for whom he died, a person who's come to him and found him and loves him and lives for him. You need to be under grace. And you come by repentance, by believing in him alone, and by giving him your life. And if you do that sincerely, with all your heart, you will have the unmistakable evidence within you that he's saved you and forgiven you and changed your life. Let's pray together. Lord, help us all. Grant that we may be under grace saved by the mercy of Christ and have his love 
and have him as our friend in heaven who will bring us through life and all the way to glory. Look upon us and bless us this night. Take away our prejudice and our foolish pride and cause us to see our need and to come for mercy. We ask it in the name of our Saviour, for his sake. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>